2: I'm Deputy Editor Helen Lewis, and this week we're talking about Cameron and the EU, the most boring political interviews of all time, the politics of obesity, and the future of the space race. I'm joined by our political editor, Raphael Baer, and deep in enemy territory, Isabel Hardman, the editor of Coffee House at The Spectator, to talk about this week's politics. Um, Isabel, I'm going to come to you first, and we'll talk very quickly about, you've, uh, you've interviewed Nadine Dorris. Bring that to life for us. How was that?
0: Well, I've got a real soft spot for the Nadine, I have to admit. I know there's not many journalists who would say that, but I think she's an interesting human politician and there's not actually that many of them. I mean, compared to, I'm not going to name names, but the worst interview I ever did was when an MP talked about how much they loved their constituency, which was a very boring constituency as well, for an hour, and refused to say anything at all that was critical, including they couldn't even criticise the hearings they'd had on a select committee. Whereas Nadine will just say what she thinks, and I think that's really good for politics. I think you want more people... Who you actually think that what's coming out of their mouth is what's in their brain? That's a good thing. And Raph, we've seen this also with the kind of
2: our cover story this week about Boris Johnson, Gove, who are notorious on the Tory side for actually giving an answer to the question that's been asked rather than downloading a policy document, right? Yeah,
3: I I, I agree with Isabel on this actually that uh, there are a lot of MPs. There's you know 650 MPs. Most of them are kind of anonymous, and a lot of them feel slightly pointless. I mean, they get elected in their constituency, and there they're the little kind of local pasha, and that's all fine. But actually um you know special advisors heads of charities mums net they're all sorts of people who get to sort of intervene in the process have much more influence and sort of, sort of mid-table also ran mp is kind of nobody so it's kind of understandable they say well why don't i just say what i think and at the same time you know, people have we I mean, I have to swear on this podcast I can't yeah remember. people have very well-attuned bullshit detectors generally and they know when they're being given a tedious robotic parroted party line and they switch off so that's part of the reason that politics is sort of held in contempt it's not the only reason it's part of the reason and one of the gifts that boris johnson has as a politician is everything he says he says in his own words and actually that's that's true to a lesser extent but to an extent of michael gove There are two people who can you just have a fluency in the way they articulate what they say that it makes it clear that they are the originator of this thought or this expression, and they never say the same thing in exactly the same way twice whereas you' a lot of people, especially I think the labor side is slightly worse on this who say exactly the same thing in exactly the same words over and over and over again. And it just doesn't work in the 21st century as a way of communicating.
0: Although that is good for message discipline when you're in opposition, you've got to give it to the Labour benches at Prime Minister's questions. They will ask the same questions every single week, and they'll ask three questions on the bedroom tax, two questions on food banks, and it'll drive Tory MPs nuts, but they get their message. It's the
3: classic Alistair Campbell school of message discipline, which is that if you're, I can't remember the exact quote, but he essentially said, if you're so fed up of saying it that you that your eyeballs are bleeding with tedium, <laughs> right. then it is starting to get across to the electorate, and and you see this classically with the sort of um, too far too fast mantra and uh, on the economy, and there is a point there that you know you have to throw a lot of mud at the wall before some of it sticks. But I think now twenty first century, there's a new sophistication in the way that people can filter political messages, and actually. They don't want to hear the same thing. You can have the same message, but the authenticity sort of included in someone actually saying it in their own words, being able to do it fluently and naturally trumps... Sort of robotic consistency.
0: The worst example of this is Danny Alexander. He thinks that a successful interview is when no one can remember what he said and he just sort of parrots the party line, goes home and is very happy.
3: He is very good at that though. Yeah. I mean, that guy gets put up on news night when the, whenever there's, a really, whenever there's some, some awful horrible economic situation where they've done something slightly sort of brutal and unpleasant that the Lib Dems will certainly hate and everyone else will be a bit sort of unimpressed by. They put Danny up on Newsnight and he just deadbats it actually rather well.
2: Didn't you have, when you interviewed him, didn't you have a line about kind of him being like an airport security system where every kind of package of words gets kind of the x-ray detector before it gets let through his teeth? And that
3: that is part of the, that is part of the array of skills that a modern politician has to have. But uh, alongside that, uh, particularly anyone who aspires to leadership, which I don't think Danny massively does. I mean, he's ambitious, but I don't think he thinks he's going to be Prime Minister one day. Um, it, you, you have to also be able to use your own words properly in a way that is colourful and makes people think oh look there's a normal person
2: And talking about Nadine, obviously the reason that she's been able to make so much capital this week is because of the big European vote um, the motion of regret on the, on the Queen's speech how bad, now that's happened and lots of Tory
0: MPs rebelled, how bad is that for Cameron? So it's not bad in that it's, it's not a rebellion so it's not classically bad but it's still bad because Cameron dealt with it badly, so He released this EU referendum bill 48 hours before the vote. Why didn't he release it alongside the Queen's speech? Saying, this is a draft bill, we can't do this, look at what we would do. This is what some cabinet ministers have said to me they would rather have done, that it would have been orchestrated, and then there would have been clear differentiation rather than panic. Now, the other thing is, it's actually bad for the Tory party, because the Tory party is now split internally. In fact, it's not just split, it's like a kind of broken mirror, basically... They're all arguing with one another about their tactics over this. There were lots of Tory MPs last night who voted for that amendment, but who didn't want to. They had to vote for it because they don't want to be seen as Europhile, which is the worst insult you can possibly use for, for a Eurosceptic MP. Any suggestion that they might be weakening their robust line on Europe, and they'll go into panic. So there were lots of kind of gritted teeth going through the lobbies last night. But this
2: frightens me because I think that, um, realistically the the way that it goes is there will be some renegotiation, there'll be some tiny concession, and then David Cameron will have to campaign to stay in Europe because it's a pragmatic <laughs> economic decision. At which point, presumably, you know, that's sort of like the kind of they'll be like the wolves at that point after having been, you know, just desperately attacking anybody for this that like you
0: say this perceived your What's he going to do then? Well the the real problem is is that even if David Cameron goes with what he thinks is a big ask from Europe he still doesn't have a particularly minimalist vision of Europe. If you look through his big Europe speech at the start of this year, he talks about things like climate change, social protection, all of those things that Tory MPs hate. And so they may suspect that he'll go into the negotiating room with an offer that they would still consider completely unacceptable. I think that's
3: absolutely right. I think what, the one thing that we've learned, and the, the, the most significant part of that Nigel Lawson intervention a couple of weeks ago where he said he would, um, he wasn't interested in the renegotiation and that he probably to leave anyway, uh, was the observation, I think, is widespread on the Conservative side, that actually there isn't a renegotiation possible that will now satisfy that urge, that visceral urge that a lot of Tories feel they just want out. And it, all of this sort of tug of war with Cameron, it, it's increasingly about trying to normalise a position in the Conservative Party that says, you know what, we don't want to be shackled to the corpse of this big statist, quasi-lefty European bureaucracy, we just want free of it. That is not David Cameron's position. So although they can say, oh, we're terribly united because actually we all want a referendum, actually the bottom line is David Cameron, he's kind of a creature of the establishment. Deep down, he doesn't want to be the man who leads Britain out of the European Union. And there are a lot of Tories who think that you only really want a leader who will do that.
2: Now, I got mocked by Andrew Neil, your chairman of a company that employs you, Isabel, on the Sunday politics for saying that the best thing that Labour could do was shut their trap on this and let the Tories get on with it. How do you think... Raf, that Labour have handled it
3: well I'm I'm slightly torn on this I I I have in the past said I I sort of can entirely understand and and agree with what is basically an Ed Miliband Douglas Alexander view on this which is that we need to just be responsible we don't think a priority should be a referendum on Europe we think it should be jobs and growth Uh, this is a private grief on the Tory side that we shouldn't be intruding on let's just show that we could be a responsible government doing the right things that's fine in theory but it it sort of depends entirely on having a whole set of other government things that, first of all, you know you would do, and second of all, people know you know you would do, and they don't have either of those things. So if, you, if there isn't a kind of responsible, an alternative responsible government programme around for you to point to saying, well, this is what we would be doing instead of banging on about Europe, all you're doing is not banging on about Europe and not doing anything else. So you're just sort of the anti-referendum party. And I've spoken to, Tory, to, sorry, to Labour MPs Who are very agitated about this, not because they're desperate for a referendum or they secretly want to try and leave the EU, but they think, hang on, So there was a vote last night in which if we just abstained, Cameron could have been defeated in his own Queen's speech, massive humiliation, circumstances that a decade ago could have brought down the fall of the government. And we were the only people, along with the Lib Dems, marching through the lobbies in support of Cameron. Even the Tories weren't doing that. One Labour MP said to me, there were Tories pointing and laughing at us, walking through the no <laughs> lobby, going, what are you doing? If, if, do you honestly think if the roles were reversed, that we wouldn't just be doing everything we can to hurt you and bring you down? Because this is the oppositional system we have. That's what oppositions do. They wound and they try to kill the government. And there's you propping up Cameron, you mugs. And a lot of Labour MPs <laughs> are thinking, Christ, they might be right. What are we doing?
0: They've kind of got away with it though, haven't they? As in, they haven't had the turmoil that John Barron and Peter Bone said they would have when this draft bill was published. I remember speaking to John Barron about three months ago, and he said, When the Prime Minister finally publishes this bill, which I hope he does, then Labour will go into turmoil, they will split the Eurosceptics and the Europhiles, and we will see what's happened in our party happening in their party, won't it be wonderful? Well, that hasn't happened this and, week. And there's a
3: reason for that. I mean, there are differences, there are, there are profound differences in terms of the tactics and even the strategy towards Europe with regard to the specific question of a referendum. What there isn't in the Labour Party is a large group of people who just want the hell out of the EU. And that, so you could have to sort of take a few steps back, zoom out, and what you see is actually the split in the Conservative Party is between people who want out and people who don't. And Labour, basically, big picture, they're in.
2: Thank you very much, Raf, and thank you, Isabel. <laughs> I'm joined by our food columnist, Felicity Cloak, to talk about her story this week in the magazine um, about public health and fatness. Hello, Felicity. Hello. And you start with this anecdote.
1: Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I talked
2: about um, an ice cream van, and, yes. and then we talked about the different kind of, the idea of who's to blame. Um, and actually, you bring in a lot about the idea about class and income mm. and how that relates. So uh, Anna we got into a lot of trouble for implying that there was a link between income and weight.
4: But where does the science on that now sit? I think the problem was, she didn't phrase it very tactfully, but there is an undoubted link between um, income and weight. And it's true to say that the richer you are, the less likely you are to be overweight. Um, I think the problem is that blame is apportioned to people who don't have so much money as if they are choosing to ameliorate their situation by eating junk food when actually a lot of them don't have a lot of choice. I mean, if someone lives in the inner city, they might not actually have access to any large supermarkets of the kind that many of us can just drive to. They don't have a car. They're surrounded by um, fast food shops and convenience stores which actually, if you look at them, they don't sell many fresh um, fresh food items. They just sell junk. I think my actual favourite
2: piece, uh, bit in the piece was this idea that, you know, people leaving these incredibly smug comments mm, on websites yeah. saying things like, well, we bought a chicken for £8 mm, yes. and then it did supper for an entire... And we just gro- that- It took some herbs from the vegetable garden. <laughs> yes, exactly, um, yeah. But so, and what you know, where is where is that problem? Where, why don't kind of people or middle incomes, middle class people understand about about budgeting?
4: I think it's incredibly hard for anyone who has been brought up with a basic knowledge of how to cook. I mean, my parents cooked every night, and feel very lucky that although we weren't eating gourmet feasts, you know, I knew from quite an early age how to make you know a stir fry or um, a stew or something. Whereas if you haven't been brought up like that you just don't have the basics to, to even start to put together simple meals. Um, and I think that's difficult for many people to understand. Um, and also the practical practical aspects of things like, as I said, getting to a source of fresh food. Um, people just assume that everyone is in the same situation as they are, but with a little bit less money to spend every week. But it's not the case. It's an overall income problem which is again what we see in this kind of i could live in 53 pounds mm. a week and you go well
2: yes you could if you've got a house already yes. if you've got money in if you've exactly. got you know, you've got some good clothes and... that aren't
4: going to wear out etc
2: um and there's a quote from diane abbott in here about the fact that people when you try and reform things like advertising people say well it's it's a free it's a free choice mm. where is the kind of where's where are the politicians on this what would they what are they trying to do about it
4: um i think the coalition seems to have um seems to have adopted a real personal responsibility um, position on this. So it's up to everyone to just eat fewer calories and then the problem will be solved. Um, The problem is, as I said, a lot of people don't really have much of a choice. It might seem like they're choosing to eat this fast food, but actually they don't have all the options that richer people have. Um, So I don't think that's really very helpful. Obviously, you know, if we all do eat fewer calories, it will help. But um, I think the Labour Party are about to put up out their public um, health uh, policy review and they are looking very much at tackling the problem a lot earlier which is actually where we need to be if we're going to do anything about this because the fact is once you gain the weight it's very very difficult to l- to lose it so we need to stop children getting fat in the first place which actually is a matter of addressing this before they start school, addressing the advertising at new parents, um, maternal diet during pregnancy it really goes back a lot earlier and it's not as simple as just saying you know cut out that bag of crisps and everything will be fine and talking about cutting out bag of crisps a bit of
2: a departure for the new states and podcast you've been wanting about the 5-2 diet Mm -hmm. does it actually
4: work it does it's it's quite early days for me but it does it does seem to work and i think it is it is we're all very used to being full the whole time and grazing and snacking or even just eating three meals a day that's quite a lot of food so i should interject for those people who haven't read about this yes, the idea that you yeah. spend two days a week out of every seven eating 500 calories over yeah or rest. you can eat you can eat nothing if you want it's called the fasting diet eat nothing. Um, I've, I've talked to quite a few people that find it easier just to eat nothing rather than counting calories for two days Um, But then you can eat normally for the other five days. That to me sounds like the surest recipe to just doing the classic diet thing and breaking it,
2: deciding you had one chocolate biscuit. No, that's the thing, thing, because
4: I I am always of that thing. You know, I think, oh, I'll just have an oat cake. Oat cake's quite healthy. And before I I've had three oat cakes, and I think oh, it would be nice and butter. Um, But this is, you know, I don't think that, because I think, oh, I could have, you know, 10 oat cakes if I want tomorrow. or actually I can have, I don't know, a big thing of lasagna or even some dreaded crisps. Um, So I just think it's a little bit more of a, it, it sounds silly when they're talking about two extremes like 500 calories versus anything, but it's a more balanced approach. It's just slowing down and kind of saying to your body occasionally, okay, we don't need all of this food. Do you think there'll be a
2: time when we look back on, for example, I know that there's a lot of research about sugar and the you know the, mm. the effect that that has on, on then blood sugar and then diabetes, and do you think that this is an aberration that in 20 or 50 years' time we'll look on this period as being a time when our eating was totally out of control?
4: I think there's... There's probably a chance that our, our diets haven't caught up with the change in our lifestyle so obviously as we all know we're all leading much more sedentary lifestyles but we're still eating the kind of high fat, high sugar diet that our ancestors had, you know, they, they had to eat. Um, I think the problem is that the human body is designed to crave things like fat and sugar and it's very, very difficult to change our biology the way we've evolved to be. Um, but I think that there probably will have to be if we're going to solve this increasingly expensive crisis, there will have to be um greater regulation of foodstuffs and that probably will lead to most people, possibly most middle class people cutting out a lot of the, the fat and sugar that we eat we all eat. Basically. I do find
2: I do find that as probably the way that things were going the way that they would be taxed in the way the same way that we recognise that alcohol yeah. and cigarettes yeah. are you yeah, know, you it was, to pay a higher cost. Yeah,
4: it's interesting that Diane Abbott said that they'd looked at that. It's something that's been trialled certainly, I think, in Denmark, and they decided against a fat tax because it's people so saw it as a political pleasure. pleasure yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, well, thank you very
2: much for talking to us. Um, you pleasure. have a new book out, which is about being a perfect host, and obviously you write for the New Statesman every couple of weeks on food. So if you want to check out the magazine, anybody, uh, you can read Felicity there.
4: Thanks. Thank you very much.
2: Young person's astrology? No, that's the the bad one. Astronomy correspondent Alex Hearn to talk about the future of space travel. Um, Alex, everyone's been very excited because Commander Hadfield, uh, came back down to Earth again after a couple of months on the International Space Station,
1: and more importantly, on Twitter.
2: And on Twitter, tweeting great photos from space, which I recommend that everybody checks out. But I wanted to talk to you because actually, the future of space exploration to me seems slightly diminished there's no real prospect of another man mission to the moon to, to mars what is the future of humans in space
1: well it's basically whatever companies can find a business rationale for doing this is this is what seems to be the trend space travel is no longer a dick-waving competition between america and russia i mean
2: the most sweary podcast we've ever done <laughs> anyway, sorry ref swear, I swore as well earlier
1: um at <laughs> which point no no carry on no carry on um yeah instead it's just uh there's a few things that nasa's doing mostly scientific exploration and you don't actually need people uh in space to do any real science um and then it's things which companies can make money from doing so this martian exploration uh that was proposed a while ago uh is is a private company that will be funded by selling the tv rights and they probably i mean they'll be lucky to get the billions that they need but you know, they're looking for sponsors. They're doing everything. They are doing it for the And same they have a way. huge
2: number of applicants, right? Exactly. People want to essentially go and
1: die on Mars. They'll find people to die on Mars. That's not the tricky part. The tricky part is finding the money to keep them alive for long enough for it to make interesting television.
2: It's bleak, isn't it? Right. Okay. <laughs> and then so there's the, also talk about asteroid mining
1: as well. Mm-hmm. But again, this isn't this isn't likely to be human space exploration because you don't need people in space to mine asteroids. It's still kinda of badass, but uh, the interesting thing about asteroid mining is everyone thinks of going up into space and launching some platinum-filled asteroids back down to Earth. But actually, at least in the near term, it's far more prosaically uh, mining asteroids for water and then leaving it up in space. The most expensive thing about space travel right now is getting things out of Earth's gravity well. Mm. So if you've already got minerals out of Earth's gravity well, you'd be an idiot to take it back down. Instead, you leave the water up there and you use that water to refuel other human space explorations.
2: And America's commitment to space travel, how strong is that? Because obviously the story that's always told is this you was know, a great Cold War struggle, America mm. versus Russia, but now the, the level of cooperation is actually pretty high, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's no longer... The, thankfully, this is one of the improvements in the last few years, is it is now largely humankind working together. Although, of course, China's entering the game as well. China does hope to put a man on the moon. And, you know, in, in, in every nerd's dream, we get a second space race with America and China fighting it out. Uh, In the meantime, America's ambitions are limited. Um, Currently, NASA is just trying to work out a way to get people back up to the International Space Station without using Russia's Soyuz spacecraft. But even that right now uh, seems to involve a lot of cooperation with the private sector. SpaceX, which is one of the biggest private sector spacecraft companies, uh, has built a rocket which can go to the International Space Station and back. It's not yet allowed to take people because they're worried it might be a bit too explodey but it works. And I mean, you know, it's not a bad time that there is a spaceship company, that that's a thing that exists. But at the same time, we're not going to leave Earth anytime soon.
2: And on that depressing terrestrial note, I'll leave it. Thank you very much, Alex. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast, found at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast or on iTunes. We've been Felicity Cloak, Raphael Baer, George Eaton, Isabel Hardman and Alex Hearn. And it was produced by Yozushi and edited
0: by Philip Morgan. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ.